Welcome, friends, to Game Master's Studio, where we talk shop about running tabletop role-playing games. With us today is Jared and Ed, with your host, Jerry. Hello, and welcome again to Game Master Studio. My name is Jerry, a.k.a. Frieden, DM with nearly three decades of experience. I'm here in the studio today with Jared, a.k.a. DMF, proprietor of Mad Doc Designs, creator of the World of Wrath, and semi-professional GM, and Ed. You guys said there would be nachos. There are no nachos. Well, then today is Nacho Lucky Day. So we're talking today about group size. We were discussing character creation uh, last week, and today we're talking about assembling everybody, getting them together, calling out uh, Avengers Assemble or to the Batcopter or whatever. Uh, oh, yes, I'm sorry. I'm sorry. Also in the studio today, we have Garm. He's not going to say anything. He's not going to contribute because he's a dog. Uh, but just in case you ever hear somebody suddenly exclaiming about someone jumping in their face and licking it. Yeah. That's garbage. It wasn't me. (laughs) So, party size. Um, There's been some discussion on that. We've brought it up a little bit later on. Uh, I'm sorry. I'm trying to keep a straight face here. The garb is being some very silly antics. Um, But the average party for a gaming session has been... We we agreed on about four to six players. Yeah. Um, And there's some reasons that that is... That is the average. That is the standard. Um, so let's talk a little bit about just your, your regular, your normal size group, your four to six yeah. group, balancing that pros and cons and how we can make that work for us. Well, you know, outside of how the system works, four to six is just a good number. You know, you're going to have a GM plus, plus you're going to have players. If that number is somewhere around five to seven, that's fine. Uh, it is going to keep balancing the group mechanically. But also it keeps balance in the group for the actual game session itself. Uh, Everyone's going to be able to get their turn. People shouldn't really be stepping over anyone's toes with that number. And it's going to keep things fairly manageable for the GM. And plus, if somebody steps away or somebody has to miss a session, not everything's going to come crashing down because that person's not there. Right. Um, But also mechanically, uh, specifically with D20 systems... Uh, it's built in such a way that because that's the a rough number, it kind of gives you those different options for what different character classes can do with the idea of building kind of the generic group. And I think some of this has its roots back in original D&D, uh, yeah. which has been brought up before when there were the four classes, uh, fighting man, cleric, thief, and magic user. Yeah. Um, and a lot of that has carried through. We still see a lot of that original design in the games today, even though it's branched out into a little more, little more generalized roles of you yeah. know, kind of being the big guy, the the attacker, the smart guy, magic user type, and kind of a uh, a healer support type character. Yeah, it all stems from the original four classes, but I mean. 
it works. There's a reason that it works. It's a reason that it's built around that. You know, having the the sage, arcane caster, kind of you know, knowledgeable, intelligent guy. Having the healer, support person. Having the meat shield, tough guy that can put out some damage, take some damage, and having your your skilled, roguey, sneaky person. Like having that four, four base classes or four you know templates or archetypes. It really gives you a lot of options as a GM to play with. You have you go okay. I can I can offer puzzles in this situation that they can overcome. I can offer fights in this situation they can overcome. And you can basically you know you can throw anything and everything at them that you typically would throw because with those four yeah. combined they can pretty much handle any situation. Yeah, and you're going to see this in other systems too. One of the one of the systems I'm the most experienced with is uh, the Palladium system, specifically Heroes Unlimited. I mean, just look at comic books, you know, for like the X-Men, you're going to have teams, you're going to have, uh, they're all going to have their own function. You know, Wolverine is the guy that gets in everyone's face and is, you know, clawing away and doing lots of damage. Wolverine is also the guy that's on every single team. That's true. Uh, you know, and this is classic X-Men I'm thinking of, you know, 90s-ish. You know, Cyclops is going to be blasting away from a distance. You know, Storm is going to be using her spells to kind of control the group. And in a sense, so is Jean Grey going to be doing that thing, that sort of thing. So if your game is based around, like, maybe superheroes, you know, you might have your guys who kind of fit that same niche. They're all going to do something different, but when they come together, they end up being fairly powerful. Yeah, it's about a team effort, you know, and being able to control different situations, because not everything's a fight. Right. You know, if you have a party that's, you know, say, again, you can stick to the, the four to six players, but your four to six players are all fighter types, you've seriously limited what that party can handle. They might be able to handle a lot of fights, but they're going to need a lot of downtime in yeah. between those fights because there's no healer to accelerate that heal time. Exactly. They're going to know they're going to have no arcane support and any puzzles they might have a problem with. You know, they're, they're not going to be no... sneaking up on anyone presumably. I mean, and they, there's lots of variables. And they trigger every trap they come across. Yeah, absolutely. And they're going to they're going to get worn out. They're going to have no healing. Mm -hmm. And when you go to the to the non-traditional encounters, let's say the inn's on fire and we need to rescue people, you know, having the fighter there to break down a door or prop up a support for a few seconds to get somebody out, that's great. But a fighter having to try to get somebody off the second floor or try to contain the flames so they don't go to the next building, right. they're going to fall flat there. Yeah. Yeah. You're not going to see any conjuring of water or, you know, magical escape routes or anything like that. Yeah. So, yeah, that's pretty much, I mean, that's that's where the root of it comes down to, so that's where your average party size kind of stems from, is, you know, having that that base, that baseline to, to make sure you have a well-rounded group. Now, there's really, because, because average is, well, average, it's the normal, there's a, really a limit to how much we can say on it, and I think the bulk of it is we're going to be looking at these the other ones the group that's too big and the group that's too small to be discussing about how they come into play and how you have to work with those advantages, minimize the disadvantages, and, and play off of it. So we're going to start by looking at the group that's considered too small by standard. Yeah. And that's, you know, your group of one to three people, which is actually very awkward because from what I've seen, it's very rare to have a group, as it were, of one player. Right. Yeah, I mean, I, I mean, I've done solo sessions before. Either either there's a player or a GM. Sometimes you just have a friend. You know, you're gonna be hanging out for a few hours, so you you build a character and you start playing a just kind of a throwaway game, and then it turns into something. Every once in a while, you meet up and you play it. I've done solo sessions. I've done a solo campaign. 
I had a friend that wanted to play a Warhammer game, and the rest of our friends didn't. So we put I put together a, a scenario, and he put together a character. We played it for a couple of months, and during that time, both of our role playing skills increased exponentially. Mm. It was great because as a one on one between player and DM. All of the spotlight time was on that one player. It all built around his character, what he wanted to do, and he got to be there without having to give that consideration to others and really develop his character. Because if his character was boring, the game was boring. If his character didn't do anything, the game didn't do anything. And it was just a really fun experience. Um, Obviously, it takes just about it takes probably more effort to run a game for a single player than for a group of players because you have to make sure that everything is tailored and balanced properly. But it's a really rewarding experience when it comes off right. No, that's true. Yeah. But the trick, again, is making sure that it's tailored specifically to what that character can and cannot handle. So that's which is what we're talking about right now, you know, making sure that you can handle those situations. So, you know, if you're one player that you're playing with is again, a fighter, just because there's a lot of limitations and not having any magic whatsoever in a group. <laughs> you know, there's limitations in having too much magic, obviously, but just, you know, just like using the fighter as like kind of the baseline. Like, if you have a, um, a single party of one that is a fighter, and that's all they are, a fighter, fighter, and only a fighter, they're going to want to see some combat, but again, you got to make sure that there's a lot of downtime, you're going to want to make sure that they're, you know, obviously, in my opinion, which I sounds like is the same as Jerry, there's going to be a lot of role-playing with a, a one-off, just in Again, because you can only have so much combat without a full balanced well, group. Actually, that was something that came up that was very interesting was was the combat because it was where combat got really avoided because you have one player. Mm-hmm. And if that one player gets into trouble, it's the same as the entire party being in trouble. Right. So it's a lot of don't rush in. Make sure that there are other options besides violence. Make sure that you've hedged your bets if it might come to violence. Because if that character dies or winds up unconscious out in the wilderness somewhere, that's campaign over. Yeah, yeah. You're, there's a, a, a strong vulnerability that I would assume that we feel there. I've never actually. I take that back. I have played in one man campaign. I've run and played in one man campaigns, but we're going way back to my roots. So long ago, I almost forgot. Um, but yeah, there's definitely a lot of vulnerability. You don't have that invincible feeling of like, I'm in this party and nothing that we've run across has ever stopped us. Like, if uh, if I, I get hurt, I know the cleric's going to rush over and heal me. Right. Well, I, I will say a part of that, though, is pick your system and or pick your class. Uh, you know, maybe in Dungeons and Dragons, it's not so easy to play a one-off character and have all of the elements of a game unless you pick your class right. I mean, there's some classes that can do it. You know, cleric comes to mind, paladin comes to mind, bard. You know, bard comes to mind, but also pick your system. You know, you could you could play a solo campaign in a white wolf setting where you're playing a vampire and most of what you're dealing with, like you're politicking with other vampires, but you're most of what you're dealing with is humans at night. The yeah. vampire is going to rule that. Or you, you also have playing. the ability to heal yourself in that kind of system too. Like you, you know, do. a large focus of your time as a solo a single vampire would be feeding and staying alive. Yeah, that would be an important part of your day, anyways. And and also, you know, you could be playing a superhero system. I mean, think again back to the comic book idea. Think of like Spider Man and the Hulk and uh, you know uh, Batman or Superman. Yeah, okay, these guys are in groups, but they also do solo things. Mm-hmm. So, I mean, there is there is that way to do that. Yeah. So, 
It's about finding that balance. Yeah. yeah. I mean, I think moving off of just the, the one-off or the one player, you yeah. know, the one-on-one uh, situation, you know, if you have two or three players, again, like in the D20 system, which seems to be the most vulnerable to that type of situations, like mm-hmm. we were just, you know, kind of covering, I think, personally, one way that you can handle that is, other than filling the party with NPCs, is allowing what they call, like, gestalting. Yeah, you know that's one option that's out there, and that's completely GM discretion. I don't think there's any official rules for it in Fifth Edition yet. I have my own custom rules that I've done, but the the, the basic concept is you're building two characters into one character instead of having to each player run two characters separately, which is a lot of extra work. You're having them be two classes simultaneously in one character, so you can be a wizard slash cleric. Every time they level up, they get a level of both wizard and cleric. It's a little bit more to handle than just being a wizard or just being a cleric. Obviously, there's a little bit more to manage there, but it's a lot less to manage than running two separate characters because you don't have to worry about two backgrounds. You don't have to worry about jumping back and forth and role-playing two characters at the same time. You are one character. You are just twice as powerful, and that allows your party of two to three or even one to cover a lot more bases. You can have a fighter slash cleric and a wizard slash rogue and whatever you want. And there you're getting all those four archetypes are typically going to be covered between your two or three characters. The only problem I really see with that, I I like that. And I think that's a good answer for what to do is you make your, and essentially what Gestalting does is it makes your characters more powerful. Right. You could also do that by, you know, making them level five, but running them through like a level one, sort of dungeon. But it fills gaps also. Exactly. Yeah. Um, the only uh, real other way is that you, you kind of touched on that would be NPCs. Either, you know, if you have two, three players, everyone gets to make a second character or the GM fills in the spots, you right. know, or, you know, gives you more support. Yeah. And that's how, I you know, when I say NPCs, I would say yeah. the, the GM running a third or fourth character in the group. Like, okay, you're playing a fighter yeah. you're playing a wizard. I'll give you a sneaky cleric-ish kind of guy. A <laughs> <Now>, bard. <laughs> now, I, I spent a lot of time reading the theory online, you know, reading about, you know, conceptual stuff. Yeah. In addition to reading all the rules and the interactions. And that's actually one of the biggest pieces of hate I've seen is for what's called the DMPCs. Yeah, I don't like them. When the dungeon master has a character in the group. Yeah. Um, so you have to be really I, careful. I'm not really with talking that. about that though. I think that is a separate issue. Yes, but multiple characters being run by a single player can actually be really useful if you're doing a, a, a heavy hack and slash. Yeah. If you're just getting together with your friends to roll some dice and kill some monsters, and you're not getting heavy into the role playing, and that's what's fun for you. By all means, have a couple players. Yeah. Um, when I first started, there was only one or two other people I knew that played D&D, so it wasn't uncommon for us to be playing three to four characters, playing an entire party by ourselves, because all we were doing was going out and killing monsters and rolling dice yeah, and getting loose. Yeah, and just to clarify, to make sure that I'm understanding right, and just so our listeners are understanding right, now you're, you think it's a separate issue because, and yeah. I'm, let me just see if I'm interpreting this correctly. Is. Having a GM have an NPC in the party, they're pretty much in the background. They're just support. Right. They're there to just help when they need to help. Exactly. Having a GM run a PC, quote unquote, in the party, they're yeah. just as active and engaged as any other PC would be at any time, which I completely agree is two yeah. different scenarios. It feels like it could be the same thing, but I do think of them as two different scenarios. And I definitely think a GM running a PC in a party is always very much a bad idea no matter how fair you try to be everyone's going to accuse you of favoritism 
and or anti-favoritism. You might be throwing your guy into pits and screwing over yourself slash the party just to prove that you're not playing favorites. Right. I now have the picture of a hireling swan diving into a pit with traps while giving the goofy scream as he's falling. The, <laughs> yeah, no, I'm actually running the game now where the group didn't have a rogue, so they went to a mercenary guild and hired one. So I have this dwarven rogue following him around. You know, I'm giving him a little bit of personality because I do that with every NPC, but he's mm -hmm. he's just there to support them. He's just yeah. there to be an extra action. Hi, right. you're my paycheck. Exactly. He's just there to do that. Yeah, I, mean, I also have fallen into the trap of running uh, the, the GM PC. And usually it works out fine, but then there are going to be those times, like you said, where people are going to be like, oh, your character did the big thing. So yeah, you just, almost want to fudge your good roles just so you're never yeah. the star of the show, which would be the one trick I would say if you ever do try to do it. Don't let yourself be the star of the show. You have right. NPCs to be the star of the show when it's appropriate, but the PCs are your heroes, and you shouldn't be trying to steal that spotlight from them by having a right. PC of your own. You're, you're the GM. You're the director. That's what you do. Let the players be the stars. Yeah. So, uh, what benefits does the small group have? We spent a lot of time talking about how to be careful around small groups, oh, how yeah. some of the issues are. But what's the benefit of the small group? More role-playing, more one-on-one -on -one sort of interaction. Everybody gets yeah. more spotlight time? Yeah, everyone yeah. gets more spotlight time would be the biggest thing I would say. Easy to manage, you know, instead of having to spread your time between players one through six plus, you're only, you know, you're dividing that same amount of time between three, you know, one to three people, which means they get much more spotlight time, a lot more role playing time, or a lot more of whatever time that they want. You don't have to identify the needs of the many because you only have a few. So you get to identify the needs of the few, figure out what those three players like, figure out their player types, check out a previous episode, and you know, then you can appeal to those masses and give them what they want more often. Right. Yeah, and I also think you have another advantage away from the table in scheduling. Yes. If you have two players plus a DM, you've got three people that you have to have the schedule line up. If you've got six players plus DM, getting seven people together, any one of them could have an issue and all of a sudden, oh, I guess we don't have our only healer for today. Yeah, right. absolutely. Good point. Yeah. Um, I've played in a game that was you know, two players and DM and we had a ton of fun with it because it was just a case of oh, hey, I can make it on Saturday. I can make it on Saturday. Okay, we're gaming on Saturday. Even though we didn't normally do that, we were able to fit in extra games and it helped helped us get some more time in to get those characters a little more developed, to have more fun with it. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. All right, so that's a little bit about uh, about the small groups. Let's uh, let's flip it to the other side. Let's look at the big groups. All right. Uh, so a large group, we're looking at six or more players. Six, six yeah. is kind of the borderline between the average group and the large group. Yeah, I'd yeah. say the large group starts at six, but other people would disagree and say seven. But yeah, yeah. it's right in there. Now, I've... I've seen people who say that the best thing to do if you get up to like seven players is get another player and split it to two groups of four. No. I disagree entirely. Yeah. I, yeah. I agree. Disagree. I can see the benefit of that, but at the same time, you know, you, you want all your players to have the same experience, you know, or relatively the same experience or the same opportunity of experience, you know, and that's going to, that's going to differ if you split it up and you have, uh, 
someone else running a smaller session. Though I do like the idea of running two different, you know, I've talked about this before. I do like the idea of running two different groups in the same campaign and just seeing the the possibilities of where people might choose road Y over Y, you know, road X. Now question, do you mean I'm going to run this game and I'm going to run this group through it and this group through it at the same time? Or do you mean I'm going to run this game and this group is on this path and this group is on a different path and occasionally they're going to intersect and meet and maybe screw each other over. Uh, well, both are fun. I've done both versions, or I've done the second version that you mentioned before. I would like to try the first, where on Mondays I'm running you know, my Contagion game, on Wednesdays I'm running my Contagion game in parallel. They're going through the same storyline, starting from the same okay. place, but just kind of just out of curiosity to see the different players and the different characters take different paths throughout that world. Because even though I might have railroad tracks and you know and you know such, like I, I try to play very sandboxy within those tracks typically. So it'd be kind of I'd be interested to see. That's just an experiment and a little bit of a side tangent. I had that. I actually experienced that from the player's standpoint. Um, with my 4th edition game, which I know I've mentioned a few times, even though there are people out there that don't like 4th edition, I had a lot of fun with it because we got the right group. Um, But the DM was running our game and running another game and running the same campaign, and the players were given the same missions, the same goals, same tasks, in many cases the same encounters to run through. And we kind of heard after we were done how the other group dealt with it, which was really kind of interesting because we went up through like level 10 and only lost a single character and the other group apparently was had people die like every other session mm-hmm. so we were just like rocking it out and, and they were struggling but they were blitzing through a lot of it faster than yeah. we were so it was really fun to hear kind of how somebody else handled the same issues yeah um you know i, I like to kind of bring us back though this sounds yeah. like running two two different groups you know which is which is almost another topic which is a di- which is another topic really <laughs> fun to talk about but another topic the the issue with big groups is i think the overarching issue is going to be with all those people you're going to get a lot of people who are going to get bored and the reason i say that is cuz as a gm you can only do so much. You can only engage a certain number of people at a exactly. time. Yeah, I think everyone's going to have their turn, and even if everyone has a five-minute turn to role play, when you get around to that eighth person, he's been waiting 35 minutes, 40 minutes to do something, and then when you finally get back to the first person, they've been waiting that long too, so it's... Yeah, I think when it comes to large groups, the most important thing in several aspects of this term, but that really boils down to time management. Oh, yeah. You need to yeah. make sure that your combat turns are fast. Like, this is definitely when you stress, like, if you don't know what you're doing on your turn when I come to you, then it's the next round of initiative. I don't have time for you to figure out what you're doing on your turn. You should know by the time I get to you, because you've had 20-plus minutes to think about it. Like you said, combats are going to take a long time because you've just doubled your average number of players, so you've doubled your average number of characters. You're increasing that initiative order um, exponentially, you know, for 100%. So... Double the characters, double the resources they can throw at the problem means you have to double the magnitude of the problems in order to challenge them appropriately. Exactly. Right. So exactly, you know, you know, normally like okay, well, in a party of four, at whatever X level, I might throw fifteen orcs at them. Now, in order to have this similar kind of you know encounter with eight players or eight characters, I have to throw thirty orcs at them. Yeah. So we're talking about huge numbers. So everyone, you know, it's all time management. You've got to make sure that your combats go boom, 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 boom. In order to not bore people during combat, you don't want to bore them during combat. It should be an action sequence. People shouldn't be falling asleep during it. 
And another part of time management, like you mentioned, was like spotlight time. Like, right. you know, like we mentioned with small parties, they get a lot more time per person because there's only three of them. When you have eight of them, you're having to split that spotlight time. Right. You know, if you have a four-hour game, you only have X amount of spotlight time for each player when there's eight players, and you do want to split it up evenly. Right. So I think the trick with not only making sure to manage your time correctly and make sure that each person gets that fair amount of time is to try to split it up as quickly and often as possible. Yeah. Don't give the whole spotlight time that player one's going to get right at the beginning of the the, uh, the session and then never give them any more spotlight time. Like, right. break up that spotlight. Okay, you. Okay, you. Okay, you. You might even want to stay in initiative order the entire game just to try to manage that time. Like, that's, and that's one way or one trick that you can use for managing a lot of players is keeping the entire session in initiative just for order so you don't have eight people trying to talk over each other you don't have eight people trying to go well i open yeah. the door well i close the door well i open the door well i close the door well i open the window well i close the window well i'm gonna say i'm gonna say uh hi to this guy and shake his hand no i'm telling you that we don't like this guy you know like you have 15 different people or eight people and why exaggerate we already have a big number eight people talking over each other if you stay in initiative keeps your, your game organized, keeps mm -hmm. things flowing, you have a pattern. People know when it's their turn to talk. Okay, Ed just went, I'm next. Jerry just went, Ed's next. Okay, we know what's going on. Now, I don't want people to get discouraged from, from running large groups. I think they can be really fun, there can be a lot of rewards. And there's also some very, I was thinking this, this these classical examples. Um, we've mentioned the Dragonlance Chronicles a couple times in previous episodes. Uh, the Fellowship of the Ring was nine members. Yep. There's there's all these his well not historical but in fiction there's plenty of examples of large parties, which I think gives you an advantage of being able to do stuff like that. You know, when you have a large party, you can coordinate a town's defenses. Yep. You can put together an epic plan that requires multiple people to do stuff at the right time because you have that personnel and that manpower to put it all together. With And you can have these huge epic fights because you can have, you know, these two characters fighting the mooks down below and the rogues running and swashbuckling through the through the catwalks as the mages lay down fire support and you can have these grandiose set pieces that that really wouldn't work because you've got one or two people but when you have a party of eight or nine you can do these everything gets bigger and better yeah, yeah it uh, does open bigger up. at least it does open up your options and you can throw and again this is going back to the d20 system which we're probably going to do a lot, but you can throw harder challenges at them. And in fact, you have to. Um, you know, you wouldn't want to throw, say, you know, uh, three or four owl bears up against a level one group normally, or a level two group normally. You know, they probably wouldn't be able to handle that. But if you have eight players, there's a better chance that they can handle that, that they can wrangle that in. Yeah, I mean, especially like, again, you know, looking at the D20 system and looking at 5th edition, they specifically built it so numbers can be superior in that system. Exactly. So while you might not normally throw an adult dragon at a group of a party, you know, level 5 guys, if you have 8 level 5 guys and a town of, you know, random level 1 dudes, yeah. throw a freaking adult yeah. dragon at them and see what happens. Let's see how many spears it takes to bring that dude down. Now, the thing you do have to think about, though, is dividing experience and treasure. If you have eight players, it's going to go eight ways. Yes. But if you're making things more challenging, then it won't really, won't really matter much. Won't be a big deal. Yeah, and when it comes to how I would recommend treasure, at least when it comes to magic items specifically, is I would find ways to hand specific items to specific players. Yeah. Don't give them a chance to quarrel and bicker over it because while three to five players might be able to gentlemanly or latedly, you know, like you know 
come to an agreement, yeah. you know, okay, well, this is best for you. And this is like, you have eight players. You're going to have overall, you might have two fighters. You might have a paladin, two fighters and a ranger. You don't, there's going to be overlaps there. There's a very useful, uh, bit that I had with one of the GMs that I played with that I'd like to introduce into one of my own games at some point. I just really haven't had a good chance to. And that was when treasure, as it were, because it was Dungeons and Dragons still, but when treasure was discovered, rather than being you find X, it was, okay, who's getting the treasure? And the player, you know, the players decide amongst themselves. In our case, we generally went, well, who's gone the longest without getting something new? And they get it. And then the DM would tell them either, you know, okay, it's a piece of armor or choose a defensive item or choose a weapon that you like up to a certain value. Hmm. And so that way, the, the DM didn't pick what the treasure was. The player got to pick something that fit them. Yeah. And that way... With because this was in a group of I believe seven or eight people on that on that party, that way it could just be okay. Now it's your turn. Now it's your turn. Now it's your turn. Without the DM trying to figure out, well, if I give them the if I give them the sword that I want to go to the paladin, is it going to wind up going to the ranger or the rogue or right. something else? Instead, go to okay, the paladin. You get the treasure. What do you want? Oh, I want this really cool sword. Okay. Done. It's yours. What you guys found in that treasure was actually this sword that you now have. Yeah, no, that's a good way to do it. Yeah, some other advice I would give for large um, parties is breaking them up into smaller manageable groups. Yeah. And I don't mean that as in different sessions. I mean that within the game. Yep. Um, Jerry was actually a part of one of the uh, games that I ran where I had eight players. Yeah. And one of the things that I did was I broke them into groups. I mean, it was mostly role-playing, but I broke them into groups where they actually had to go off with like two to three players each and figure out how to deal with a situation on their own. So it was a lot of intertwined role-playing amongst themselves, and I was just basically sitting back and answering questions as they came to me between the two or three groups that I had broken them down into. Um, So that's worked. And then you can use a similar kind of concept for combat, too. You can actually be in combat. But I would recommend not doing... Do not handle one combat and then the other. Roll initiative for the totality of the group. Yeah. For all the monsters and just bounce around like, okay, this might be happening in this fort and this combat might be happening 14 miles away. But roll them all together, run yeah. them as as if it was one giant combat, so that way everyone's engaged the whole time. And that's also great for if you have the two that matter time-wise. This group is fighting the imposter who's replaced the king, and this group is doing a holding action against the guards that are trying to break in to stop the people who they think are trying to assassinate the king. Then you can also have cool stuff going off, like this party has an explosion from a spell going off, and the other party hears the loud thunderous boom. Um, You can have some cool back and forth there as one party affects the other. Yeah, I mean, you know, they always say it. Don't split the group. You know, you always hear it. You're always going to have that one person who's like, no, 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 we're not splitting up. But with large groups, you have that option. You can put you know, a group together that can handle most situations and then the rest of the players who can also probably handle most situations. You know, you can have that classic, you know, cave where you're there to find the artifact to save the world, but there's multiple tunnels and you don't know which one to go down. And instead of going all the way down one, finding out that's not the right one and then having to go all the way down the other, you split the group. And maybe even pulling from uh, one of my favorite video games... Um, the Final Fantasy 3, which is six Japanese numbers, there's actually a cave where you have to split your party in two 
because each party is going to enable the other one to advance. We're going to flip a switch so that these guys can move forward, and then they have to provide a counterweight to open the door so that this party can go forward. And you've got these two groups running side by side, and the only reason either group can advance is because of the other group. And if you couldn't split the party, you couldn't do that. Yeah. And I definitely agree with what you said earlier about doing combats at the same time. Set them up so they're all done. I'm actually very proud of a time. This was with a normal-sized group, but all the characters were split up. But I wanted there to be some sort of confrontation, and a lot of them were building into a combat. So I eventually put them, all the characters, in a combat scenario, and then just ran through that scenario. Yeah, right around the table. Uh, just right around the table. Yeah. And yeah, it was four different combats with like five or six different players but it was down initiative order it was all going it was it was it was fine it on the table they were just separated into four different groups but they were all on the same table yeah it's certainly manageable something i might make a suggestion if you don't like we use d20 pro which is something we're going to talk about in Mm -hmm. another episode but if you roll and run initiatives my personal recommendation that i like to use for large groups at a big table is Whoever rolls the highest goes first, and then go clockwise around the table from there. It's so much easier, and I mean, I know it can t- that can take away from character concepts of like I have the really fast rogue and I, you know, right, whatever. But for for but time we- management, it's a lot easier to know if you're going next if you're sitting to the left of the dude that's going right now and to yeah. go around the table. And you know, and that's that's open for debate. That's just a suggestion or opinion that you might want to try. Yeah, when you're running eight players, that's probably a good idea to try something like yeah. that. See how it works. Um, another thing I want to mention because I know we're running out of time is the the advantage of having a large group is being able to open up the uh, possibility for different kind of character options or class options. Right. Some of those lesser utilized. Yeah. Like yeah. a lot of people don't play bards or maybe rangers or certain other very ty- various types of characters because, you know, again, when you only have four or five people, you want to make sure you have this strong, solid core base for your, your classes, your, your yeah. cleric, your wizard, your rogue, your fighter. But you have eight people at the table. Not only can you have some of some kooky, weird fighters out there, but you can have the bard. You can have the the weird cleric that doesn't specialize in healing. You can have you know the kooky ranger that you know does dual wielding that you might think is you know underpowered. But I'll I'll argue with that. But that's again that's a, a whole other tangent. Um, you, get a, the, you get a chance to see some more experimental builds. Yeah. Um, because they can break out of that tried and true because there's there's coverage. Right. And then working off of what Jerry mentioned about the small parties, the exact, exact opposite, so instead of an advantage, it's a disadvantage for large groups, is you run into scheduling issues with large parties. Oh, I can't make it. Oh, I can't make it. Hopefully you have enough overlap that you can play without these players. Maybe you're a group that won't play unless everyone can be there. But you are going to have a lot more scheduling issues. You're going to have people that might not be able to be there all the time if you have such a large group. Life happens be prepared for it, have contingency plans, maybe as the GM run the player for that day, that character, have a, ask a player to run the other character for yeah. the day. I actually think that uh, handling a missing player is on the grand topic list. Mm-hmm. Um, so we will probably be going into much more depth on that in a future episode. Yeah. Um, but I think... Yeah, definitely a con. If, if we had to fit the entire episode into about 30 seconds, I think we just did. <laughs> <laughs> All right, so we are going to wrap it up. There's advantages, disadvantages, having a big group, small group, average size group. Ultimately, I think for the final word, say, find the people that are willing to play and work with the group you have because it's all about having fun. We're going to be headed out. Be sure to check us out on our message boards, gamemasterstudio.proboards.com. You know you want to. You can see us on Twitter at GMS Studios. 
And you can also look us up on Facebook. Definitely feel free to send us a message, like, comment, subscribe, ask for future topics. And uh, definitely, if you get a chance and you want to help out a project, Jared's Kickstarter for his live-action Bleach film is still running, so give that a shot. Give running out of time. Running out of time. All right, we will see you next time we're in the studio. Take care.